Hi, everybody. It's time to get your tickets. The Mormon Expression Reception and Live Broadcast will be on August 6th. Get your tickets now. All right, welcome back to another edition of Mormon Expression. I'm your host, John Larson. And tonight I have another um, special guest I've been looking forward to talking to. As a matter of background, um, I remember back when I was about 13 or 14 years old, you know, about 25 years ago, and my mom and dad came home with a book they had gotten at the LDS bookstore, and it was called And the Moon Shall Turn to Blood. Um, I read that book as a 14-year-old, and it scared the bejesus out of me. So here I am, uh, 25 years later, with the one and only Anthony Larson, the author of said book and uh, several others like it. Anthony, welcome to Mormon Expression. Uh, thank you, John. I appreciate it. So um, we know you're the author of, of said book, um, and it seems like at the time it was being advertised heavily in rotation on KSL. I, I, is, is my memory serving me correct? You have an excellent memory. Yeah, it was promoted heavily by the original publisher. Unfortunately, he uh, went out of business. I took over the uh, publishing part of it because uh, I did not want the books to go uh, unread. And since then, I've been self-published. All right. Well, that's the way to do it these days. Um, so why don't you give us a little uh, background as to as to who you are and, and, uh, and how you got to where you got? Well, uh, I was, uh, I, my interest in prophecy in the last days began when I was in primary. A teacher said to me, um, you know, there are men uh, called prophets who recorded, who, who had visions of the last days, and they recorded them in the Bible. And uh, I went home and tried to read the book of Revelation. I think I was... Well, I don't know, primary age, you, you know, you can take your pick. Um, of course, I was confused, but uh, I was hooked. Um, and ever since then, I've read practically everything anyone of any scholarly uh, substance or, or uh, standing on prophecy. And, uh, and the thing that really got me started was when I discovered the writings of Dr. Emanuel Velikovsky published a book in 1950 called Worlds in Collision, and um, his novel idea regarding the um, events of the Exodus, the miracles or plagues or whatever you want to call them, the Exodus, he uh, connected them all to a natural catastrophe uh, caused by an errant planet passing close to the Earth which on the face of it seems to be a, uh, a bizarre proposition. Uh, in fact, the first time I heard it on my mission, I simply rejected the notion. It wasn't until years later when I read his condensed version um, in the Reader's Digest. It was uh, sometime in the mid-70s. Uh, and uh, from that point on, uh, 
I was hooked on the idea. Uh, it really got started when I uh, read in the documentary History of the Church that uh, Joseph Smith had said uh, that the last great sign of the coming of the Son of Man would be called a comet or a planet. Uh, those are exactly the same two words that Velikovsky used to describe the sign uh, of the Exodus. And suddenly it became uh, apparent to me that uh, both the prophet of God and, uh, and a scholar of ancient history were talking about the same kind of phenomenon, one about the last days and one about uh, ancient history, the Exodus in particular. So that's how it all started. One thing that was remarkable to me at at the time and, and still is, especially, you know, during the late 70s, 80s, you know, at the height of the Cold War, it was just naturally assumed that the um, destruction prophesied would come through nuclear war. And um, Vilikovsky kind of departs from that standard uh, standard line. Yeah, very much, and so do I. It's obvious that... Uh, um in fact, I've written an article about this. On, it's on my blog at uh, Mormon Prophecy. Uh, let's see, dot blogspot dot com. Um, I've written about this because uh, the the advent of the atomic age um, led everybody, the uh, all the Adventists, all of the Christian ministers that talked about the last days, to assume that those things that are spoken of the scriptures were man-made, but uh, of course, uh, when you see the same signs written about in the scriptures in antiquity, such as the Exodus, or um, Joshua's long day, or uh, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, the uh, the calamities in the days of Elijah, um, there are many, many of them, the destruction of Jerusalem, or of, of Sennacherib's army when he was laying siege to Jerusalem. They all have the same earmarks, and and those are directed, at, in my mind, they are talking about astral events. And uh, it became obvious to me that that is what uh, the scriptures are talking about, not man-made destructions, but, but God-instigated destructions using the forces of nature. Well, maybe let's take a step back and kind of review a little bit about um, Velikovsky's um, uh, Velikovsky's theory about the end end of times. Well, he didn't talk about the end of time. Velikovsky was not religious, and my role in all of this is simply to popularize his notions and the notions of the um, Saturn mythologists, comparative mythologists who have. Uh, done some work in ancient history, and uh, and the electric universe people, people who believe that we live in an electrically controlled universe, that the sun is an, an electromagnetic engine, bald lightning in space, if you will, and not a thermonuclear engine. It's quite complicated, and it crosses a lot of disciplines, and uh, just talking about the Exodus, for example, or what Velikovsky believed, doesn't really get it because all of this, what it what it comes down to, John, is that the prophets used um, a metaphorical system of of terms that were connected to these ancient astral events, and if we don't 
recognize the origin and meaning of those symbols, uh, that symbolic language, the metaphors, the imagery, the symbolism that they use, then we don't really understand what we're reading in the scriptures. Whether it's about the last days or about um, the visions of an ancient prophet such as Daniel or Ezekiel or or Jeremiah, any of them, uh, or even John in the book of Revelation. Even some of the things that the Savior taught and Joseph Smith taught have no context for modern minds except when they're placed within this astrophysical or cosmological um, uh, concept. So that's that's really what it boils down to. It's, it's pretty wide-ranging. So to make sure that I understand... Um, when Velikovsky's talking about, say, the Exodus and those those events and plagues that were talked about in Egypt, um, he wouldn't ascribe to them, um, let's say, a miraculous origin. He would say they're the telltale signs that the Earth had some sort of interplanetary event, like an asteroid that caused the the, the waters to turn to turn turn red like blood or, or that sort of thing. Am, am I getting that right? Yeah, you're getting all that right. Uh, it's like uh, Talmud said. There is no such thing, I'm paraphrasing obviously, there is no such thing as a miracle. They're just natural phenomenon with which we're unfamiliar. We have no explanation for what we see or what happens, so we call it a miracle. But if we were sufficiently um, educated or trained, then we would see it. We would see the thing that's miraculous as nothing more than a natural event. And that stems from Talmadge's view that God uses the forces of nature. He's not a magician with a pointed hat and he waves a wand and things magically happen. They happen according to an order, according to the very forces of the universe. Those are the powers that he uses to uh, exert his will through the eternities. Yeah, I think it was Arthur C. Clarke or, or somebody like that who said something like, you know, any technology sufficiently advanced appears to be magic to those who don't understand it. Yeah, that's his part of his three rules that he published. That's exactly right. And and uh, there's one thing I've discovered about Joseph Smith is that uh, Mormonism, uh, as he taught it, is eminently practical. That is, whenever there is a natural explanation for something, Joseph Smith put it in terms that um, um, we're not ephemeral, that we're not quote-unquote spiritual. He he liked to focus on the reality of things, and and I see a lot of this. I, I personally believe I've been able to substantiate the fact that Joseph Smith taught these concepts in his day, but because most Latter-day Saints, most people today, are not uh, trained in cosmological concepts, uh, they don't understand that when they come across a statement of his that refers to these things. And so this kind of material has uh, slowly been uh, dropped, if you will, from the Mormon tradition over time. But when I get back to Joseph Smith and the brethren that knew him and learned directly from him, uh, his training is loaded with these cosmological references that we just overlook. Yeah, I think I've had it explained before in a Mormon context that, you know, if you were trying to explain our modern technology and you were to go way back in time, you know, be talking to somebody 6,000 years ago, you, 
you would struggle to find the words to even explain it. So if a prophet is trying to describe something sufficiently advanced, even though it may not be miraculous per se, they're going to use language that sort of has to be pulled apart. Well, you're right, but but in my view, the the prophets in seeing the future seldom tried to describe it in um, uh, clear terms with using direct language. They used all of this ancient metaphorical language from these planetary events in the past because they saw the future in terms of planetary events, you know. Uh, the Book of Mormon is probably the best example for this because uh, just as Samuel Lamanite prophesied, there were these huge destructions that totally shaped or reshaped the surface of the earth just before the Savior appeared. And it was the same destruction that was seen at his crucifixion in the old world. Uh, uh, all of these events are are connected. Um, uh, there, it seems to me that nothing really dramatic happens spiritually without some temporal uh, equivalency in these astrophysical ideas going on. I mean, when Moroni appeared to Joseph Smith, the first words out of his mouth were prophecies about the last days. The whole restoration took place in order to teach people about the events of the last days, in addition to teaching them gospel principles. Yeah, so why, why is that? Why do, you know, big spiritual events have to be um, accompanied by some sort of cataclysm in the cosmos? Well, I don't think it has to be that way. I just think it works out that way. We as human beings are, uh, we have this uh, thing called denial. Uh, these cataclysmic events were uh, not something the human race cared to remember, and yet they they did rehearse it compulsively in their in their sacred rituals, in their ancient writings and traditions, in um, in their monuments and tomb. Uh, it's all about planets and stars, just like our temple symbolism, Salt Lake and uh, and uh, Nauvoo being the uh, quintessential examples of that, uh, our temple ritual is is just like the Ascension uh, texts uh, that we read about in the Old Testament, where the prophet's call, caught up to a high mountain and he sees the throne of God or an angel of God or God himself or the city of God. Uh, they, they climb a ladder like Jacob or or they climb a mountain, or they ascend up a path like Lehi and Nephi did, um, and they all describe what they see in these ancient cosmological terms. Uh, it's tradition, and the same thing happens in the temple. Uh, when we uh, go through the temple rituals, we are ascending until we reach the highest level. It's a, you, you, you start to see this, and it's a cosmological equivalent of something that was seen in the ancient heavens. So it goes way beyond just the Exodus. It goes back to the very origins of all cultural tradition and and to the revelation and the language that the prophets use. Okay, let's go back and sort of start near the, the um, foundational doctrines of Mormonism. In Mormonism, um, the universe was not created ex nihilo 
by an, an, an omnipotent God, per se, but it was a matter of organization via the priesthood through those who had authority. Um, how does that sort of shape into this cosmology? Well, um, the, it's, it, it's a little hard to explain right off the bat because <laughs> it takes so much background in order to make it clear, but let me see if I can explain it this way. Um, nothing in the in Mormon doctrine changes in this. It just gives you an additional perspective on how it worked. Uh, that's why the temple ritual is all about the creation drama to begin with. Um, um, it's it's a rehearsal of things seen in Earth's ancient skies, which is then depicted in a narrative form. Um, using the symbolism, the metaphors, uh, uh, comparative mythologists call them archetypes and motifs to describe those events. And, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know how to put it any differently than that without going into great detail. I just encourage people to read my blogs and, <laughs> and uh, try to understand what it's all about because it goes way beyond just understanding the last days it goes to the heart of understanding the sim symbolic language of the prophets and the message that they tried to convey you see no uh, yeah I, I agree um the one of the reasons i start there is because that's sort of where the temple starts and for a lot of people you know they go through the standard sunday school they're, they're not getting um, a lot of uniqueness when it comes to Mormonism, meaning a lot of what you hear in a standard Mormon chapel can be um, very equivalent to what you hear in a Protestant chapel. But when you go to the temple, that's no longer the case, and you start with those creation myths, and that and that um, it really introduces a new view that differs from the 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 old, the old Testament. But I don't think most people understand it. I think there's these symbols and these things that are flying around that that I, I don't get the sense that the membership um, gets a good handle on. Yeah, you're right, and that's the tragedy, because Joseph Smith left us the keys to this tradition, but because we've been trained in the um, scientific concepts of gradualism or uniformitarianism, we tend, we just don't see them for what they are. That The symbols on the outside of the temple, the stars, the planets, the moons, the suns um, are all indicative of what happens within the temple. And yet, most Latter-day Saints never make that connection. But as Nibley said, uh, it's all about the cosmos. That's what the temple's about. It's not just the present cosmos, the heavens that we see above us now. It's the heavens that existed before the time of the flood, which were entirely different. As Peter says, at the time of the flood, we got a new heaven and a new earth because the old heaven and the old earth passed away. And people see that as rather metaphorical, but in fact, it's completely literal. And that gives you a whole new view of what the ancients were talking about. I mean, there were things seen in the ancient heavens that are replicated in our temples, but we just don't even... Notice it. Uh, let, let's hop onto the flood there for a minute. Obviously, you know, you've done a lot of reading, you know, scientifically and outside, um, you know, just the scriptures. The, the flood for, for those of us who are more, um, 
I don't know, skeptical minded or scientifically minded is very hard to swallow. With, with, with all of this, um, sort of thinking, reasoning you've done, h- how can you sort of reconcile that with, uh, the, our basic scientific understanding? Well, our basic scientific understanding ignores the fact that all ancient cultures have the same story to tell. Uh, the creation myths of the Sumerians, the Maya, the Inca, the Chinese, the, um, a- any ancient culture, the, the, the uh, Nordic traditions, uh, their stories are all the same. And Nibley, of course, criticized the scholars for, and rightfully so, for ignoring what uh, the ancients wrote. Uh, he said you can, you can um, guess about how uh, geology, uh, the systems of geology brought about the world as we see it, you can assume that the world has always been as it is, or else you can go and read the ancient records, which is a little tougher to do, and and take them as eyewitness accounts. That's basically what Velikovsky did, and Nibley told me, he says, well, Velikovsky was right. He just could have cited better sources. And that's true. The, the ancient records tell us an entirely different story than the one that modern science would have us believe. And it's up to us as Latter-day Saints to sort that out. And, and when we come down on the side of ancient records, that, which we ought to, I mean, that's what our whole restoration was about, is getting the hands, ancient records into the hands of modern people. Uh, that was, we, we get a whole new perspective of what was going on in the ancient heavens. It's the, it's the, uh, non-gradualist point of view. It's that the heavens and the earth changed and the flood was the pivotal moment when they changed. Okay. So, you know, I think most of us are, are sort of familiar with the writings of Daniel and the, and the revelation of, 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 of St. John and that sort of stuff. What new things did Joseph Smith provide us as insight into the um, events leading up to the last days? Well, the the key that Joseph Smith gave us, there there are a couple of them, actually. Uh, He talks about the mysteries of godliness being uh, the story of the stars. He talks about the last great sign being called a comet or a planet, and he rehearses all of the signs that lead up to the appearance of this thing, which is, which is in, in complete agreement with the, uh, cosmological view or astrophysical view of that Velikovsky first espoused. And that was that the, these events, the flooding, the water turning to blood, the darkness, the earthquakes, the heavens reeling to and fro, the waters heaving beyond their bounds. And Joseph Smith lists all those. Uh, those were all connected with the appearance of this planet. And a- as it passes by the Earth, it exerts tremendous electromagnetic forces, forces that are uh, that are so great that they swamp gravity. I mean, gravity is nothing compared to the electromagnetic forces that are in play. And it causes all these manifestations and signs that we see in the scriptures. And that's the source of the concept uh, um, but but before the flood, uh, we were part of a group of planets. Joseph Smith uh, illustrated it, talked about it. Uh, Brigham Young talked about it. 
Um, in fact, they, they, they even exist today in the Salt Lake Temple, uh, symbols called Saturn stones. The original pictures were planets with a ring around them, and they dropped that in favor of the uh, circle freeze, uh, a circle within a, within a ring that uh, decorates the parapet, string courses around the temple. But they still called them Saturn stones. The reason is because Earth was a satellite of Saturn up until the time of the flood. Concepts that are completely foreign to most Mormons because they've never studied the things that Joseph Smith and the early brethren had to say. And they've never looked at the temple and asked, why are there Saturn stones? Why did the prophet <laughs> and uh, Truman Angel, who was in charge of the architect, in charge of, of designing the temple, why they called them Saturn stones? You see, We all know about the moon stones. We know about the sun stones. But we know nothing about the Saturn stones because we have no basis for understanding why they might be there in the temple. Well, this view of things explains that and answers the language of the prophets and explains what's going on in our, on in our, our temples. And it gives us the language and the symbolism to be able to understand prophecy. So when you're talking about a planet passing close to the Earth, you're not talking about like a comet. You're talking about a, a full-on planet. Yep. A large enough body to exert tremendous electromagnetic forces on the Earth. Oh. You know, uh, they, they, they used a lot of different words and metaphors to describe the planet, uh, the rock in heaven, which is uh, uh, inter an interesting reference to Christ himself in the book of Moses. They call it uh, a cloud. Elijah said, said it was a cloud. His, he sends his servant to look uh, uh, westward out across the Mediterranean, you know, and he's challenging the priests of Baal. And the, and the uh, servant comes back and said, well, I saw this little cloud about the size of a man's hand rise up out of the sea, you know. And Elijah says, okay, now it's my turn. And, and, and of course, he knew through revelation that there was going to be this electromagnetic electrical interchange between the two and uh, on top of a mountain would be a great place for it to to uh, connect and uh, he knew it was going to happen and so he was predictable you know again it's the forces of nature it's not some magical thing that fire falls out of heaven and and destroys the two altars and licks up the water and and destroys the sacrifice and bunch of the priests, you're talking about a natural event. You're talking about something with with the right perspective and enough understanding, you can see it for what it really was. So uh, where is this planet right now? Is it orbiting the sun, or, or, or where is it at? Well, uh, it was the planet Saturn was one of them. Uh, other planets involved in this uh, celestial game of billiards were Venus and Mars. Um, and there's a huge amount of research that's gone into this. And again, I can, I, I, I've been able to pretty much substantiate this through the statements of Joseph Smith. That's why John in the book of Revelation, for example, says that this destroyer in the last days will be called Abaddon in the Hebrew, but in the Greek or in the, in the, um, yeah, in the Greek, it's Apollyon. Well, Apollo is not Apollyon, just another word for Apollo, is nothing but uh, the Old Testament uh, god Baal. The Greeks added an A at the beginning and softened uh, the end, put an O on the end, and 
So Baal became a Baalo. Um, uh, and Apollo, all comparative mythologists connect Apollo with the planet Mars. They're just, the, the, it's, it's unavoidable. And that's what John is telling us in the book of Revelation that the destroyer, the very the thing that, that the scriptures refer to as the desolation of abomination or the, or the abomination that maketh desolate, is a planet. It's not just one, it's several. Any body passing close to the earth with sufficient charge and mass can exert these kind of things and create these natural phenomenon that are recorded by all ancient cultures and especially in our scriptures. So, so then are we to expect that like something will happen to Mars to knock it out of its orbit? Um, I, I mean, I'm no, astrophysicist or anything, but I, I I believe they're in orbit right now so they don't cross. Is that... Yeah, they don't. Um, something is going to happen in our solar system one day that'll upset the apple cart. The prophets don't say what it'll be. They just say what the end result will be. You know, Joseph Smith said the last great sign will be called a comet and planet, not because it's some metaphysical sign in the heavens and not really a planet or a comet, it re it really will be a planet or a comet, and that's the thing that causes all of those suns. So, is this something that we're to expect soon or later, or where where do you think this is going to this going to happen? Well, John, the last thing I'll ever do is uh, try to predict. <laughs> when it yeah, uh, many I, a career you know, has I, been uh, interrupted I, I drop, by by that. <laughs> I drop. I drop. I draw the line at that point. You know, when Joseph Smith was alive, William Miller started Millerism, which became the modern Adventist movements, uh, the Seventh-day Adventists and Jehovah's Witnesses in our day. And uh, William Miller, he criticized William Miller. He said, you know, anybody that predicts the last days without the signs appearing in the heavens is wrong, he said. I'm paraphrasing again. And then when the day came that Millard predicted, Joseph wrote in his diary, he said, it's too beautiful a day for false prophets. <laughs> if you don't know the story behind that, you don't know what he's talking about, but he's referring to William Miller. I, I would never try to predict when it's going to happen. I don't believe the things that are happening around us now, the oil slick in the Gulf, the, the, uh, Tsunami a couple of years ago in uh, in Indonesia, uh, the Far East, uh, the the earthquakes, the tornadoes, uh, the the civil and social unrest. None of this, the things that people ordinarily think might be the signs, really aren't the signs at all. The signs are all connected to one cause: this planet passing close. And if you don't understand that they happen like they did in the Exodus in quick succession, one right after the other over a period of a couple, three months, then you mistakenly interpret the scriptures. That's why this stuff is so valuable to know. It not only explains our temple rituals, it lets us understand what's going to happen in the future. It just doesn't tell us when. For you... Things could suddenly happen, and you know, in just a few days, you would get the the succession of events that that sort of marks the end of time. Yeah, um, um, Moses at the beginning of the Exodus. I didn't write about this in my book. 
but it's clearly evident he um, he's um, you know tending his flocks with his brother-in-law Jethro and they see this burning bush and Jethro says that's curious and Moses says yeah I'm gonna go look and Jethro says well I'll stay here you go um, and he goes up onto the mountain and, and has a conversation with God out of this burning bush well uh, as it turns out uh, according to the uh, planetary scientists that uh, espouse the electric universe concept, if another large body were approaching the Earth at some distance, when it's still two months out, uh, the two planets, Earth and the intruder, begin an electromagnetic dialogue that results in what we call St. Elmo's fire, which looks like uh, an electrical tree, if you will, uh, uh, discharging from the top of any high mountain. Uh, it's clear to me that that was what was going on. That's what initiated Moses' curiosity. He saw one of these electrical discharges, something that they sometimes call St. Elmo's fire, uh, discharging from the top of the mountain because this planet, um, Venus, according to Velikovsky, was approaching the Earth. It wasn't close enough that you could see it, but it was still two months out, which is considerable distance in orbital mechanics, and yet this electrical interaction or dialogue had already begun, and it was causing this electrical discharge. I maintain that Moses, being raised in Pharaoh's court, was taught by the priests uh, there who understood these things, even though they didn't understand the mechanics or the science behind it, they certainly understood the manifestations and uh, had taught Moses that, and Moses knew that this might be an indication of something that was about to happen, and of course the Lord says, yeah, uh, I want you to go use this event as an occasion to lead my people out of uh, out of Egypt, so. When, when I read the, the revelations concerning the last day, it seems that these are targeted towards the, the wicked, you know, the those who are into whoredoms and all these different things. Um, from the, the sound, the way you describe it, it's sort of, um, you know, it's like a volcano erupting. It falls on the wicked and the just. It, is that the way you see it happening? It really doesn't matter what your behavior is. You're going to experience the cataclysms the same? Yeah, in fact, the prophets make that point, you know. Uh, bad things happen to good and bad people. Um, if if you or are fortunate enough to receive revelation, or you happen to know someone who does, then you can be privy to the information that will help you survive. But it, we confuse salvation with survival, and, and that's a mistake. Um, you know, the the... Just to show you how devastating these things are, we seem to think when we read the Exodus account that the Israelites got off pretty much scot-free in all of this. But if you read the uh, Jewish commentaries, the Midrashim, uh, uh, they declare that 49 out of every 50 Israelites died during the plagues of the Exodus. So even good people or people who are following the, the, the counsel of the prophets fall victim to this thing uh, because they are natural events. Uh, there's no way you can avoid that. Okay, so 
then why do Mormons, why are they so um, taken with doing things like food storage? Is, is there is there any is there any purpose in that? Sure, food storage is for a completely different purpose, though it's not for the last days. Um, uh, the events of the last days are going to be so overwhelming uh, that uh, a little food storage isn't going to stop <laughs> the forces of nature. Uh, uh, these things are are many orders of magnitude greater than anything we've seen in the last ten centuries, you know, I mean, since the time of Christ, anyway. Um, um, food storage is for an entirely different purpose altogether, to get us through the, the little calamities, if you will, that come along. Uh, the only thing, there is no guarantee, in my view, of survival, um, whether you're good, whether you're righteous, or whether you're wicked, you're, everybody's going to be confronted with this. The only advantage that you might have is that once you know what's happening, you can, you can see it coming. It's the concept of uh, uh, section 84 where the Lord tells, uh, I don't remember who it was, um, uh, gives them the charge to uh, teach about learn about and teach clearly and understandingly was a term that he used. It was the bishop, I think it was a partridge maybe at the time. I don't remember his name. But he says, teach clearly and understandingly the desolation of abomination that's about to befall the earth. And he goes on to explain that uh, I have set my hand to change the starry heavens, you know. That's what brings about the desolation of abomination. And we... All we can do is hope to have some revelation to get us through it. And a lot of, a lot of Latter-day Saints have seen visions of the last days, and they've seen the saints preserved because they know how to, to avoid some of these things because they know the nature of the event, and they're being led by a prophet who foresees these things, much like Moses. So that's the key. Okay, um, in one of our prior conversations, you mentioned the, um, Lost ten tribes. How do they figure into all this? Uh, well, because Joseph Smith early on connected the ten tribes to uh, having been caught up to a planet. Uh, Lizar Snow and I don't know a number of early Latter Day Saints in their diaries connect the two, and they they because they understood poorly what Joseph Smith was trying to teach. I believe they took the concept literally. The disappearance of the ten tribes. Um, uh, has always been connected with the disappearance of the planets that once uh, accompanied Earth or that the Earth was once a satellite of in the past. The, the disappearance of the city of Enoch, the disappearance of the ten tribes have all been connected with these planetary events. Uh, correctly or incorrectly, that's where, that's where the connection comes. Uh, I, it, it may seem strange to someone uh, reading my work uh, that I don't subscribe to the idea that the ten tribes were caught up to another planet. I don't. I, I believe the ten tribes are right here among us, and I've written a book about it called, uh, called um, uh, um, well, I, I mentioned in the book called Parallel Histories, the Nephites and the Americans, which is now out of print, but uh, I've written extensively about it. Uh, the ten tribes are right here with us. We can find them. We can find their names all over Europe. Uh, uh, they were known as Hebrews, and of course, 
They are remembered as the Abiru. That's what they were called in the Elamana letters. Uh, the letters written by uh, Akhenaten to and from uh, rulers in the in the Middle East at that time, uh, and they call them call them the Hebrews, the Abiru, and and we find their name all over Europe in the uh, in in words like Iberia and Hibernia and uh, Siberia, you know, and the same people that occupy those places called themselves Galileans only a week. The, the name changed. The Greeks called them Galatae, the, the, or, the, or the Romans called them Galatae. The Greeks called them Gel, Geltoi or Keltoi, and they are the Celts, the Celts, the Gaelic peoples of Central Europe. They, they clearly moved northward, the ten tribes, and uh, moved right up the same route that the Orient Express takes today, right into Central Europe, and they left their names everywhere they went in Europe. So... And it naturally, the indication is when Joseph Smith sent out missionaries, he sent them to England saying that England was rich in the blood of Israel, you know. Uh, uh, and the reason for that is because that's where the ten tribes went. And, of course, when we get our uh, patriarchal blessings, we are adopted, but we are adopted into Ephraim or Manasseh because we have some measure of their blood in our veins. So, you know, we have met the ten tribes, and they are us, you know. All right. Well, um, since Joseph, you know, the church has had a string of uh, modern prophets, uh, what have we learned about the the last days and the cataclysms to come um, since Joseph? Well, the brethren haven't talked much about it. Um, the last one was, uh, oh, gosh, in the 50s. I'm trying to think of his name now, and it escapes me. He referred to Joseph Smith's statement about the planet and the comet. He said, sure, in the last days, um, um, I've got to, I'll have to try to find that reference for you. I haven't got it right here. And I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble with noun recall. I'm 67 now. <laughs> the brain doesn't always work as well as it should, but I have the same um, problem. Oh, <laughs> well, I'm glad to know that somebody else suffers from that malady. It drives me crazy. Uh, anyway, LeGrand Richards. LeGrand Richards said in the last days, he gave a conference talk, and he said in the last days, you know, they'll see some sign. They'll notice uh, an errant planet. I think he called it a misplacement of planets is what he said. Uh, and he was referring to Joseph Smith's statement about a planet or a comet. Um, there, there was a whole part of... Um, uh, Mormon tradition, there's a great deal of this information that's come down to us anecdotally, second-hand, third-hand. And one of those most interesting accounts that refer to this is a conversation reportedly had by Joseph Smith with, um, oh, what was his name, um, Homer Brown. I believe he's the great-grandfather of U.B. Brown. Anyway, um uh, he records a very interesting conversation with the prophet about all these events, and he can, the prophet connected it with the 88th section, and he drags uh, Brother Brown outside and makes him point out the North Star and, and uh, asks him how he found the North Star, and Brother Brown explains that he uses the Big Dipper, and then he goes back in, and Joseph elaborates all of these 
mechanics involved in a planet passing the Earth. You know, he talks about how when it passes close to the Earth, it's going to cause the Earth to rotate more slowly. And he uses the example of swinging a bucket of water over your head. As long as you keep swinging the bucket of water, the water stays in the bucket, even when it goes overhead. But if you slow it down a little bit, the water sloshes out. And he said the same sort of thing, which is a good example, actually. Um, so there's a lot of information in the early church uh, tradition or, or records uh, of early saints, their diaries and and uh, memoirs that talk about Joseph teaching these things to them uh, that we know nothing about today, but it's well substantiated. Why, why do you suppose it's, it's changed? I mean, it was something that um, obviously preoccupied a lot of the sermons and writings in, those, in the infancy of the church, and then it's sort of during the Cold War, it heated back up, you know, in the 60s and 70s and even into the 80s, there was a lot of talk about... Um, the, the end of times, it seems to have slowed down a bit. And like we, we, you know, if we've talked about here, there's not nearly as much as, as Joseph Smith said in, in his time. Why do you suppose that is? Why isn't there more information coming out? A lot of reasons. In Joseph Smith's time, um, uniformitarianism or gradualism was coming to the fore in uh, academic scholarly circles and scientific circles. And uh, as Latter day Saints went out and and got training in, in advanced institutions of learning, they uh, they were taught the concepts of gradualism. So the statements by Joseph Smith that lent themselves to catastrophism uh, were slowly uh, ignored, uh, suppressed, uh, uh, fell out of favor. And nobody, after that, nobody had any format for really understanding it. Uh, no context in which to put it. Um, uh, and yes, it's, it's ebbed and flowed over time. Uh, when I was a recording engineer at BYU in the 60s and the 70s, uh, we used to record education weeks, and the most popular session was Cleon Skousen's lecture on prophecy. We used to fill the Dion concert hall to overflowing, and people were out in the foyer because they piped the sound out there. Uh, boy, it was a big event. Um, I know I had to record it. <laughs> but by the time I published my books in the early 1980s, uh, I couldn't even get the uh, Education Week's people to consider my presentation. They said, no, there's too much conjecture, too much discussion, too many heated discussions, too, many, too much ill will. And so we just don't even have discussions on prophecy. So in the space of about 10, 15 years, the church's view of prophecy had undergone a dramatic change. Yeah, I was going to ask, but it, it almost goes without saying, you know, there's there's a lot more um, Mormon scientists uh, today than there obviously were at Joseph Smith's time. How, how are theories like this accepted by the faithful who are educated in things like, um, you know, astrophysics? Well, it depends on their perspective. Uh, Nibley didn't talk a lot about the real physical events, but he talked about the the ancient traditions, uh, the the uh, cultural traditions and and archetypes and motifs that come from those ancient traditions. He didn't describe it in planetary terms, but 
he did talk about planets and stars, things like Kolob and all the rest, which are, you know, part of any prophetic vision. Um, I'm trying to think of the, there was, it, it depends on the scientist's point of view. Some are, are dyed in the world uniformitarianists. They won't see anything any differently than, uh, say, uh, Carl Sagan saw it. Um, but then others see it quite differently, you know. Um, and I was trying to think there was one, well, in any case, the, the, there's a wide disparity of views within Mormonism today because most Mormons have not really studied the teachings of the prophets. They've not looked at it from this point of view. They get uh, this biased view that comes down to us over decades where these elements have been not discarded or not really suppressed, just ignored because nobody has an explanation for why Joseph Smith would tell, uh, draw a picture for Philo Dibble, his closest, one of his closest confidants, his, his bodyguard, why he would draw a picture of what the ancient heavens looked like and draw three spheres and, and the three spheres that shared a common axis of rotation. You know, that, that kind of information has just fallen off our radar, and yet it's there. Yeah, and I just want to make sure, you know, we've talked about uniformitarianism a little bit for those of our listeners who might not be as familiar. I mean, that's simply the theory that, that the uh, rates and laws of the universe stay steady. And so when we look at like a strata of, of rock in the mountain, we can assume that the processes that, that took, that created those, um, you know, were, were uniform and, and took a long period of time. And that's generally what most of the scientists today, um, uh, uh, fall with. So they can look down this strata and see, you know, millions of years. And, uh, um, the, the alternative views, the cataclysmic views think that things might have changed or, you know, like we've talked about tonight. And so when you look at rock strata, there might be other processes that, that account for that in shorter periods of time. With anything yeah, one, group of one group of scientists call it punctuated equilibrium. Everything moves slowly, gradually. Uh, mountains are eroded by water and wind until they become plains, and then tectonic forces push them up into mountains again. Uh, and it takes millions of years, according to the orthodox view, for that to happen. Um, there are other scientists that say no, um, that say these, that's what it looks like most of the time, but there are moments when, uh, all that changes and the forces of nature are accelerated tremendously. Mountains, uh, rise out of valleys in a matter of moments, you know, that's the concept. And like, just like Latter-day Saints, Orthodox science or, or mainstream science rather, you can find scientists on both sides of that question. Um, I'll give you a good example. Mount St. Helens erupted a few years ago, and at, when they went back in months later and they sliced away some of these deposits that, that had been uh, ejected or, or uh, had flowed down the mountain from the eruption, and they were layered, just like we see in any geological layer. Uh, and and if, a, if a geologist were to look at it with Without knowing about recent the recent eruption of uh, St. Helens, they would have told you, well, this layer would have taken 2.3 million years, and that layer would have been 5.6 million years, and 
and yet we know that it happened in the space of a few days. So punctuated equilibrium or catastrophism is not a new concept. It's just not been the dominant concept since the time actually was going on Cuvier, Agassiz, um, the other early Murchison, the early geologists, that, that revolution was going on at the time Joseph Smith was restoring the gospel. And it just became too much for Latter-day Saints to resist. If they, if they wanted to get um, a tenured position in any uh, accredited university, uh, they had to toe the line. If they taught the catastrophist point of view, they were just right out of luck. I know that constrained Nibley that he had to maintain his academic standing in order to teach the things that he taught. So there were a lot of things that he knew and believed that he never bothered to put into print. So in general, how are your theories um, accepted in the church? Do you receive a lot of negative feedback? Are they well accepted or, or are you largely ignored? Uh, uh, how does it how does it go today? All of the above. <laughs> uh, it's largely ignored. Um, yeah, I receive a lot of negative comments. People try to call me to repentance. You know, it's, uh, uh, Brother Larson, you don't really, you, 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 you've somehow apostatized, you know. Then others are, they see the eloquence, they see the eminent reason behind these concepts and how they answer so many questions in the scriptures and make plain things that were just confusing before that they are just totally on board with it. But they are a minority. There's absolutely no question. Um, it, it, it's, uh, it's not a popular concept, and it sometimes becomes a little bit difficult road to hoe uh, when you're out there doing it yourself. My book sold real well until the early, early 90s when that... Uh, little incident happened in southern Utah and the brethren made a list of things that local authorities should look out for in apostates and one of the things on the list was people who read books about the last days and when that came out desert up to that point desert book all the LDS bookstores sold my books they were LDS bestsellers but when that statement came out why everybody ran for shelter ran for cover and uh, my book sales went to zero, you know, and and I've not been able to resurrect that. I've not been able to find a way to reach a, a wider portion of Latter-day Saints, and it continues so today. Now, the little event you're referring to is the shootout with the Singer Swap Clan? I don't remember exactly what the event was. I was here in California. Uh, I'd have to get out the, 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 the October 7th. Does that sound right? It could be, but I, ninety-two. I, it was a. It was. There were some people in southern Utah. All I know of it is the people in southern Utah were having weekday meetings, study groups, and they were they were doing things the brethren didn't approve of. In fact, I guess in a couple of cases they came out and and uh, in contradiction to what the brethren had said, and so. Uh, I guess they decided to clamp down on them, and they made a list of things. You know, you couldn't be a, you couldn't be a. Um, uh, gosh, what what is the name of that ultra conservative political group back in the sixties? The the John Birchers. Yeah, you couldn't be a John Bircher, or you were suspect. You couldn't if, if you were inordinate, inordinately. 
interested in food storage, then you were questionable. If you read books on the last days, I've got the list somewhere. <laughs> the Deseret News published the story about it. It's appalling, you know. President Benson was a John Bircher, for heaven's sake. But, you know, but basically what that happened is what happened, it ended my ability to reach out to Latter-day Saints with that. Since then, I've created videos, put them on YouTube. I've got a web page, mormonprophecy.com, and I've posted a lot of my writings on uh, my blog, uh, mormonprophecy.blogspot.com, and uh, they can read about it there if they care to get a little bit different perspective on these things. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, since the the mid '90s, it's been sort of a, a real tragedy. I mean, the a Deseret Book, under the direction of the Church, bought up Covenant books, and then they bought up Bookcraft, and then they bought up Siegel Book. And what's happened is we have a homogenized voice, and much of what's available in Deseret Book is just palpum. And um, you know, if you want to have a good free exchange of ideas, you have to have room for. Ideas that might be a little bit uh, left of center, a little bit right of center, some that might be a little bit um, um, different. But that's, I think that's that's healthy, and it's unfortunate that the situation right now is such that there's not a major publisher, there's not a major outlet for for that sort of thing. Yeah, I agree with you. I'm glad you said that, John, instead of me. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll be happy to write a letter to whoever I need to. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Let, let me get let me get you to write a letter. Pass it, <laughs> pass it around at your next general conference. <laughs> <laughs> well, Anthony, it's been a it's been a real pleasure talking to you. Your like you said, uh, your website is mormonprophecy.com. We'll put a link up on uh, on our website, and from there you can get to the blog and see the books you've written. And there's links to your uh, YouTube videos, which are which are quite interesting, also. Good. Yeah, I, I, I had hoped one day to do a whole series of documentary videos, but uh, I did one short one called Joshua's Long Day that some people enjoy, most don't, don't um, that's on YouTube, and I wanted to do a whole series that was going to be the pilot, but the, the appalling lack of interest out there is <laughs> made prohibitive. You know? I, I, I have to buy, I have to, like Nibley said, you have to earn your bed by the sweat of your brow, but the lunch is free, you know. Uh, <laughs> but I don't know about you. I can't get by on lunch alone. <laughs> <laughs> well, like I said, it's been a great time talking to you. Hopefully, we'll, we'll put a little interest your way. Uh, as always, the discussion continues on our website at mormonexpression.com. You can send us an email at mail at mormonexpression.com or call us at 801-906-6722. 